Hey, everybody, and welcome to Summer Forecast High of 70s. I'm your host, Tyler Henry, and here with me is my dear friend, Nate Bebout. And we are extremely excited to um, finally get this podcast out and in the open, playing in your guys' ears. There's been a lot of... uh, And a labor of love. It's been a labor of love, for sure. (laughs) A lot of details and work in the last few weeks, and we are just excited to finally get this thing out for you guys. How are you doing today, Nate? Doing awesome. Sunny in Ashland, Ohio. I think it might be in the 70s today. So how apropos as we dive into the music of yesteryear. Uh, You know, Tyler, I was just thinking about this. Uh, The 70s was 50 years ago. Yes. Yes. Even for me, that sounds impossible. You know, even though I am, you know, young, I was raised in a very old-fashioned household. And so then I guess I'm with you where, like, I still think the 70s were 30 years ago and the 80s were 20 years ago. Right. Right? But that's not how it is. No. It is not that way. So, uh, yes, we are definitely getting into some older stuff, which is the heart of this project, really. I, um, uh, this idea for the podcast really came, from, um, came to me a few weeks ago. I, I've been watching this TV show, and it takes place in the 70s. Mm-hmm. And um, each episode, a song would be coming on. And I found myself like, Every episode I'd watch, I'm Googling the lyrics to see, like, what song is this? Like, this sounds so good. Yeah. And I just, through each episode, I saw this reoccurring theme of, like, oh, wow, these are very similar artists, very similar time period. And upon further research, you know, I discovered, oh, man, this is the day and age of the 70s um, in this great genre known as folk rock. And... uh I really, I guess I just felt convicted as, as a music lover myself, someone who has, um, was blessed to be raised um, by people who love music, such as my grandparents, you know, introducing me to the crooners of the 50s and 60s, and my parents who, you know, love that 80s pop rock that they introduced me to, such a great time of music. Yeah. Um, and then I was lucky enough and blessed to fall into a, a pretty hipster group of friends in yeah. college that just love music and appreciate it. And so like, I felt like I had a pretty good understanding of music as a whole. Um, And as I was watching the show and hearing this music, I found that I was deeply mistaken and missing out on a, uh, on a very beautiful section of music. Um, And so that's how I came to this decision to start this podcast. And so every other week, each episode, um, Nate and I are going to be discussing a different band from this time period, really shining a light on an artist that really came to power 50 years ago now. Um, And it's a band that, you know, seems to, at least for the most part, have been overlooked and forgotten by kids my age, you know, the younger millennial generation. And so we really want to just bring these artists back into the limelight, um, just give them some playtime that they deserve. And we're going to have some guests on each week, someone who, knows these artists, appreciates their music, and then someone, you know, my age who, again, has never listened to them, doesn't know about them. And uh, those conversations that will follow are just, uh, are hopefully enlightening, entertaining, uh, good stuff to come. You know, I think the other fun thing that I'm excited about this project is, um, you know, you and I uh, are millennials. Is that true? Are you a millennial? 
Do you fall in that yeah. range? I am by a few years. Yeah. I'm on the, the, like the older end of the millennial spectrum and you're probably on the younger end. Um, but there's all, there's so much out there about this, like, um, disrespect between balloon boomers and millennials and uh we're we're a generation separated you know obviously by generation x who nobody cares about and uh and there's all this animosity between the two groups and as a as a former worship leader and as somebody who loves music i always feel like if you want to get to know someone get to know the music that they like Mm -hmm. uh it's such because music is such a formative force in our lives And this is the this is the music that a lot of boomers grew up with, you know. So just like you know, uh, Tyler grew up uh, loving on Dave Matthews Band, and if you want to understand Tyler, you got to like listen to some DBM. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think understanding this music is going to help us in some way understand a whole generation, uh, hopefully in a deeper and a more empathetic way, uh, resonating to the themes that were important to them when they were teenagers. So. That's another thing I'm looking forward to with this. Yeah. I, and, you know, in full transparency, like, I don't know this music or these artists. Like, this podcast is very much so a, a documentation of my own personal journey to understand these artists, um, listening to their music more. Um, and it's also, like we mentioned, an attempt to shine more light on these artists to this younger generation, just to, you know, not forget about such a formative time of music. We'll get into that a little bit more, but like, I mean, not only were these artists good, but they're extremely important to how music has developed over the decades. Absolutely. Yeah. They're, they're pioneering stuff that we're taking for granted 30 and 40 and 50 years later, but yeah, they're basically, yeah, they're, they're inventing entire (laughs) genres and approaches. You know, it's pretty, it's pretty trailblazing. It is. I agree. And so uh, just to give a quick background and some history on this folk rock genre, um, you know, we see in the 50s, folk music was in its heyday. And we see coming into the 60s was this thing called the folk revival. Late 50s into the 60s was this folk revival. And these folk artists were, you know, at the top of the mountain when it comes to music success. Um, These artists are like the closest thing that we... um, the closest thing that we could understand them to be a folk music at the time is like singer songwriter, like the coffee house mixes that we like now um, where it's very stripped down, very acoustic. It's just, you know, a voice and a guitar, very limited backing tracks. Um, But that was the music that was really dominating and coming into power. And then we see this incredible uh, time in music history coming in the mid sixties known as the British invasion. Right. Which is when uh, these bands such as the Beatles and the Rolling Stones and Herman's Hermits and the Zombies, these artists that absolutely took Europe by storm with their music, you know, crossed the pond, came to America and began just dominating our airwaves and taking all of the radio playtime from these folk artists that, you know, were in their heyday. And so what we saw was... um, there was just this group of folk artists who um, were just desperate to try to stay relevant, right? I mean, it's the Beatles we're right. talking about, the most famous band of all time. So it's like, right. these artists were like, oh my goodness, how, we can't compete. Like, how in the world can we stay relevant? 
and where folk rock came in was at this crossroads where these folk artists uh, wanted to stay true to themselves. They didn't want to sell out necessarily, but they knew that they had to change something in order to actually uh, stay relevant on the scene. And so they kept their same style of writing, that folk style. Um, but what they did different was they plugged in and they went electric and they stole all of these plays from the British band's playbooks. Um, that really came to fruition uh, when we see a young fella named Bob Dylan um, was really come was an up and coming artist in the folk scene, and there's this great music festival that still happens called the Newport Folk Festival. Yep. And uh, in 1965, at this folk festival filled with hippies, filled with you know those who uh, loved the the pureness the purity of folk music right uh they come out to see this new guy that's released a couple albums that they love so much and he plugs in and goes electric at the 1965 newport festival and it turned the music world upside down the purists were you know irate that he would pervert their music as he did right the youngsters were like, oh my gosh, this is the stuff, right? And so it was just this very controversial time. Um, and it was really, most music historians point back to that time of like Bob Dylan going electric is what started this folk rock mu- movement. Yeah. Right? And so he continued on this trend um, and bands, American bands came to follow bands like the birds and Buffalo Springfield and, the mamas and the papas and even the band, the band, right. Which is, which is a great group um, that, you know, they were Bob Dylan's band. Yeah. They were his band. (laughs) And when he would play live shows, when he would tour, they were the band that traveled with them. And then eventually they were just like, let's just break off and do our own thing. And they just named their band, the band. (laughs) Right. Which is so funny to me, which is so funny to me. Well, two things uh, that I like about uh, the format that you've put together here, Tyler, is the first is um, one of the things looking back 50 years into the music scene is that um, genres and styles weren't as laminated as they are now. Like it. I don't think that people viewed themselves as folk artists or country artists or pop artists. It was all kind of just like, a little bit of like still in its infancy, right? Um, and every artist that we're going to go through in the next eight weeks together, you see that. You see how eclectic even their own sound is, you know? So uh, when we talk about folk music, we kind of recognize that we're wading back into a little bit of primordial ooze where there's not as clear, like, n- there's no question today that Mumford and Sons is folk and not country. There's no question that Dirks Bentley is country and not folk. There's no question, you know, like that, um, uh, who's a rock band, uh, that, that we wouldn't get confused with any others. Um, uh, you got like, I don't know. There you Uh, go. (laughs) (laughs) Like, you know what they're doing, right? But, but all of the artists that we're going to be looking at is like, well, they're kind of country. They're kind of folk. They're kind of whatever. 
so there is a sense of like you know um we're kind of rolling back the the tape before everything got so custom marketed to everybody mm-hmm. that it was still just like the music needed to speak to a wide a wide audience the other thing that uh I know that Tyler wanted to mention at some point in this episode, and ho- hopefully I'm not getting ahead of you is, you know, if we really wanted to be thorough, we would have to do like 150 episodes. Yeah. Right? Yeah. <laughs> so we had to be limited in the scope of what we could cover in eight. And I think you really picked eight great artists that kind of really exemplify that time in America. Um, and, but we aren't, talking about people and, and if you're listening and you're going how can you talk about folk in the 70s without talking about fill in the blank of your favorite artist is like well we we probably talked about it but we just couldn't fit everybody so yeah my honorable mentions page is uh bob dylan amazing uh we don't have an episode about him john denver yeah. Pete Seeger, john prine joan baez leonard cohen uh and for me uh this is what a little bit earlier maybe in that more 50s and 60s camp but Burl Ives. I love hey. Burl Ives. Uh, he was great. a great folk artist, uh, but none of those folks are folks that we're covering in this particular, I don't know if you want to call it season, because uh, I don't know how ambitious Tyler is to do more. Yeah. Ones, but uh. <laughs> yeah, I think it really was just an attempt to, um, yeah, in an attempt to be respectful, we just wanted to zoom in you know, uh, on like a very niche group, um, because not only did folk rock come out of Bob Dylan's influence, but like you were saying, we see all sorts of splintering branches come from this music, you know, country folk, um, you get, eventually you get this great genre that I would love to, maybe we can talk about this some other time as well. Swamp rock. Oh yeah. Which is like where CCR comes from. And, you know, like you get just those really gnarly guitar riffs. Um, But those all splinter from the table set by these bands that we had just mentioned. Um, And, you know, their influence on the artists that we're going to cover during this show, uh, it can't be overstated. I mean, my goodness, they are the founding fathers and, and mothers of this genre. But again, it would be kind of like a um, something stands out because, I mean, the cool thing about Bob Dylan is, is just how um, his music is just so hard to pin down, right? <clears throat> and so all of these artists that we have selected for the show are, um, they fit nicely, I guess, with each other. Um, these other groups are the ones who were, you know, uh, set the table if you will yeah if you listen to a handful of these bands on spotify the whole like if you like this you will like this i feel like the eight artists that we have in this season all would kind of fit on that spectrum of like if you like you know crosby stills nash and young you're gonna like carol king you're gonna like james taylor you know yeah yeah i totally agree so for our first episode as i mentioned before we're gonna have some guests come on later on um it's going to be our dear friends, Josh and Glenn. Um, you know, we're excited to talk with them. Uh, but for this first episode, we are going to be focusing on, and I think it's very appropriate that we started with this artist, um, because they, one, 
they're arguably the most well-known of our groups. Could at least make a case for that. You could make a case for it. And they are also um, like the oldest, like they started the earliest, right? Yeah. Um, and Go so ahead. that is the great uh, duo of Simon and Garfunkel, yep. made up of Paul Simon and Art Garfunkel. They started very early, and, uh, but they have also, you know, transcended time. Because even, even though we started this podcast with me saying, I don't know a ton of this music, I at least can recognize a few of the songs from Simon and Garfunkel because they're still that relevant. Yeah, they're, they're pretty timeless. Um, and yeah, I agree with you. I think it's a great band to start with because um, their last album comes out in January of 1970. So yeah. even though this is, a, this is a podcast about folk music in the 70s, 95% of Simon and Garfunkel's career was the 60s, right? Yeah. So, so it is kind of a nice little uh, transition. And you can actually see that progression in their sound. Mm. Um, th- their first album that came out in 1964 has a lot more classic American tropes that would be prevalent in the 50s and 60s that are completely absent in the 70s, right? Yeah. So um, some of those is just like the recognition of the ubiquity of Christianity and culture, right? In, in that first album, they have three Christian tunes. Mm. Like, yeah. Go Tell It on the Mountain is on their first album. Yeah. Um, and, but by the time Bridge Over Troubled Water comes out in 1970, they don't, it's like they've, I mean, some would argue that even that song is a kind of a humanistic gospel song, right? Like there's no mention of God, but there's a lot of kind of like hope for the future and stuff like that. So the evolution of their sound from like, recognizing and playing into cultural mores in the fifties and sixties until the, their, the end of their band in in the seventies. You kind of see how the nation is, is shifting and changing at the time. Yeah, absolutely. And that's going to be one thing that you will hear us talk about throughout this in every episode is that um, these artists, not only were they changing the scene of music, but they really were a first glimpse of um, celebrity political activists, right? Yeah. These, these artists that we're going to be looking into were very, very aware of what was happening in the culture around them. Um, right. And Simon and Garfunkel are no exception to that. Like that was, you know, obvious through each of their albums, really. They really wrote that into their, into their music. So I guess if we start, um, you know, at the 10,000 foot view, you know, just a, a quick overview of the band as a whole. Um, what's like the first thing that just stands out to you about Simon and Garfunkel? What's like the, I don't know, the, the, when you think of Simon and Garfunkel, this thing comes to mind. I think of great songwriting and very pretty harmonies. Mm. That's what I think. Of. Yeah, I would agree. Um, I think as I, you know, dug deeper listening into these different albums, um, I was shocked, and as I did some further research on it, forever I will just remember about Simon and Garfunkel, their diversity in sound. Yes. Uh, Paul Simon was truly a student of the art. He studied everything, right, from, from orchestra movements like Bach and Mozart 
yeah. all the way to gospel groups to, you know, foreign music. He studied so much of different countries and he put that into each of his albums. And so like, for me, every time I listened, it was each album is like a, it's a whirlwind, you know, like. But also like, I totally agree, but also they, they each seem very cohesive, right? Like he, he is, he is a bit masterful. And I, and I do think it's correct to put this at the feet of Paul Simon. I think Art Garfunkel really did. It wasn't just like he was there to, to sing harmony. I think he did bring a huge dynamic um, and a creative tension that really made Simon and Garfunkel amazing. But um, I totally agree. Like the, the albums uh, are a sampling. It's like you're going to the all-you-can-eat buffet yeah. and you just sample all the stuff that you are interested in. But at the same time, it feels like a cohesive meal. Every album even though it's very different and, you know, we'll, we'll later be kind of zooming in on uh, with our guests on their, their final album, uh, Bridge Over Troubled Water, which came out in 1970. And I, you know, I've been listening to that album for the last two weeks uh, in preparation. And it's just like, there is such diversity, but it's also cohesive. It, it, it like works together. And so yeah. I think that that in and of itself is, is pretty amazing that they did in each album kind of had this kind of, uh what's the word i'm looking for uh epicurean like sampling from other places but it all seemed to land on the same place in the overall palette it's it, it's kind of cool yeah i agree um to give a just like a brief uh overview i guess of their of their band as a whole um what i thought was really cool was simon and garfunkel like grew up together Right. Yep. They were just like friends. And, you know, they started when they first formed, they, they formed a band known as Tom and Jerry. Right. And uh, from what I read, I, I mean, you know, it says they got one song on the radio, which like in our day and age, when you think of just high school friends playing music together, getting a song on the radio is like actually incredible. Right. Yeah. They, like, they were 16 and it went to number 39 in the charts, which is like, yeah. I never did that when I was 16. Yeah. So <laughs> like, but then again, you know, like they, they broke up after that because they were like, man, this band sucks. Nobody likes us. And I'm right. like, Whoa, jeezy Pete's man. Like people not your around your block listened to your song and, and liked it. Right. Right. But Tom and Jerry dissolved. Um, and a few years later, they get back, they rebrand as Simon and Garfunkel, and they release that first album that you mentioned, um, Wednesday morning at 3 a.m. in 1964. Um, and so that was, like you were mentioning, very traditional, very much so leaning on the folky side of their tradition. Yeah. Um, and I guess for a lack of a better phrase, at least by their standards, that album was just kind of a flop. Didn't really land, didn't really stick. But what that album did, bless us with was uh the acoustic version the folk version of their great song sound of silence right, right. and so after that album uh simon and garfunkel break up because they really they put all their effort into this album it doesn't do well and they're like okay we just need to figure out our own thing so they break up um and a producer from their record label noticed that this song was getting really popular, Sound of Silence, that is, was getting really popular amongst college students. And so he actually overdubbed that song with a rock band playing behind it, turning it into a folk rock song, right? Yeah. And it launched to number one on the charts. Yeah. Number one. 
you release this album, it doesn't do well, you quit music. And yet, you know, just a couple tweakings of one of your singles and you're now the biggest song in America. At the was time. that was that Roy Halley, that the producer that did that, do you know? Uh no. That was his name was uh Tom Wilson. Because I yeah, I think you could actually make a really strong case that Roy Halley was the third person responsible yes. yeah. for Simon and Garfunkel's he's the producer that produces the remaining four albums that they do together. Yeah. Yeah. Um and he helps realize um the what they were clearly unable to do on their own. And obviously Paul Simon as we mentioned, is the one with the vision uh, with these songs. He, and actually one time when he was interviewed about like, why, does, why do you have Art Garfunkel with you if he's not writing songs and he's not playing an instrument, he's not contributing to that part of the process. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I love the quote is that Paul Simon said, because the way Art sings my songs are the way they sound in my head. Um, yeah. And so I think Roy Halley is the other person that's um, helping get the songs out of Paul Simon's head and into our ears uh, with, with his skill. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that that's a, that's a huge point that, that Tyler's making is that like, you know, so their first band that they have in, when they're 16, they release a single that goes to 39 on the charts, which is not bad for a couple high school kids. And then their first album is a commercial flop, but, the sound of silence is on that album. Yeah. Like that is a song that is totally in our collective hymnody, you know, like cultural yeah. hymnody, even 50 years later. I mean, uh, I mean, 55 years later, cause it's written in 66 uh, and 65. Um, so yeah, it's that, that is a, obviously like we're dealing with a amazingly gifted songwriter that first album out of the gate you record the sound of silence yeah which is yeah which is you know incredibly impressive and so over the next i mean their first so their first album is in 64 yep and their last album is in 70 yep and so they have a six-year career where they just uh they you know in 66 and in 68 they released two albums each and they uh um you know, just in those six years, they took the music world by storm Yeah. Uh, by, you know, releasing albums. Um, they did the soundtrack for The Graduate, which is, you know, this iconic Dustin Hoffman movie. Yeah. The music just worked perfectly. Yeah. And that was still back in a time period where you see this, you know, continue to linger um, throughout the 1900s. Not so much now in the 21st century, but like this was when music was written for movies specifically. Right. Right. You know, and so like that's where we get their incredible song, Mrs. Robinson, um, based on the character, Mrs. Robinson. Right. Um, and so we see like, my goodness, they were around for six years and they really took the world by storm. Which is just so um, it's so funny to me because one artists nowadays, they have. Uh, I don't know, they just stay together longer, it seems like, especially if they get to the status that Simon and Garfunkel has gotten to. Yep. Uh, but two, when we think of older artists, they have like 30 albums that they put out because they've been making music for how long, you know? So it's like right. you think of these older artists, you know, maybe even back from this time period, 
and their you know most recent album came out in 2015 and yet like simon garfunkel's like no we're going to release these five albums we're going to skyrocket to the absolute top of world music and then we're just going to stop well yeah i think that's that's well said and i mean yeah i don't you would be hard pressed to think of many artists who have as many songs lodged into our cultural consciousness after six years of being a band. Yeah. Right. So yeah, like we've got sounds of silence. We've got Mrs. Robinson, obviously bridge over troubled water. Um, the, the Scarborough fair. I mean like every album has stuff that like people know that song. They might, I mean, they might not know the artist, but anybody who's like 30 years or older, knows these songs um and um so that, i think that's pretty impressive um when you consider the the longevity of of their of their work yeah i agree i agree um and again this was like one of those bands that uh i only knew the hits but it is impressive of i'm not well educated on this genre and yet somehow this band still seeped into my consciousness right and left some uh you know just some great songs in there that i'm able to recognize um so when we look at that they have a short career um um, and so i guess like if we're looking at their discography as a whole like similar to that first question but like what was something you enjoyed while listening to their music um maybe you can like plug a favorite album or like a favorite track something like that um, I think one of the things that I like um, is their willingness to experiment. And, and I actually will cite Scarborough Fair from their album, Parsley Sage, Rosemary and Time, um, as an example of that, because it's called Scarborough Fair backslash canticle, because yeah. it sounds like a medieval tune uh like something you would hear you know during the jousting competition in the 1400s in in england you know yeah um and i i just there there's something about that they're willing to explore those musical curiosities um and and frankly i don't want to listen to an, an album's worth of medieval inspired you know folk tunes yeah yeah but one is great. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, they're, you know, so th- I think that's the, the thing that as I listen to their discography that I like the most is like, they just seem like they're, they are, they're not taking themselves so seriously that they're unwilling to take risks yeah. and they're unwilling to explore and they're unwilling to, I mean, and, and candidly, Paul Simon does this well into his own solo career. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I think the album Graceland is a bit of musical genius um, that he did on his own after Simon and Garfunkel depart ways. And it's all about like what we were saying before. He's such a student of music, like culture and 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 stuff. The other thing that I will say, uh, and I'll turn it back over to you, is that um, there's just so many references of faith in, in Simon and Garfunkel songs, even though they're both kind of like. Uh, non-religious Jewish guys from yeah, right? Yeah. Like, uh, but you know, you think of that song, Mrs. Robinson. Jesus loves you more than you can know. Um, yeah, 
I know a song that you love, Tyler, is the song Blessed on the Sounds of Silence album, which is a, a modernized uh, Beatitudes. Um, we mentioned already that they, they sang Go Tell It on the Mountain. Mm-hmm. So there's, there's a lot of faith. Um, the, the, the song, the, the song, Bridge Over Troubled Water, is based off of a gospel song uh, called uh, Mary Don't You Weep that was recorded by the Swan Silvertones. Yeah. Um, and so it, he's, he's obviously something about Paul Simon is resonating with the spiritual dimension and even though he's, he would not consider himself a, a practitioner of any specific uh, religious practice, there's something about his writing that, that obviously is connected to faith and spirituality. Yeah, no, that's, that's definitely true. Um, you know, I'll speak to both of the points you made. Just in terms of their experimentalism, that has always stood out to me. I mentioned that earlier, just the diversity of their music. And one thing that I love so much is, you know, we kind of, you plugged uh, earlier just how um, the engine behind the music was Paul Simon. He wrote every song, he wrote all the lyrics, he wrote all the parts. Um, And, you know, to an outsider looking in, it seems like, Art Garfunkel was just riding on his coattails, right? Um, one thing that I love is that Paul Simon gave credit where credit was due. He truly loves the musician of Art Garfunkel. Their group dissolved early because the two of them got frustrated with each other. Right. Um, and that's why they broke up. But one thing that is true is that both of them, even with their frustrations with each other personally, they recognize how good they were as artists and the one thing that i love so much is i was reading this article um and art garfunkel was quoted to say um even after the breakup and even after all of the ugly he said about he and simon we both respect the good and in this crummy world where the mediocre is good enough we really chase after something better Mm. and that resonates with me on such a spiritual level because you know I, uh, I am one who's always trying to push myself to grow, to stretch, to change, to think differently. Um, and, you know, I, when you find yourself in a culture or like in a system where um, good enough is so widely accepted, yep. um, that just clashes with me on such a core level because uh, I'm not saying I'm a perfectionist. I'm far from it. But my goodness, we should at least try, right? And that's something that even despite their differences, these two guys um, chased after something better. And I think that's what, you know, we've been blessed with 50 years later. It's just this music that came as a result. Um, And to speak to your point of, you know, their faith innuendos that he puts throughout all of his albums, that song that you referenced, Blessed, my goodness, I love it so much because like, it's a contemporary Beatitudes um, of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount um, where he is just like putting names and faces into the blanks of where Jesus is saying, these people are blessed, these people are blessed. Uh, Paul's like putting specific you know, demographics of people to make it put a little more flesh on those words, which I just, you know, have just really enjoyed and it really resonates with me, which I like. So yeah, this, this, this band, it was really like a uh, comet burning out. It came fast, it was fiery and furious, uh, and then just 
dissolved as some good things do. And um, yeah, they truly are great. Their diversity, their um, willingness to step outside the box. Uh, Simon and Garfunkel truly is a band that uh, transcends the amount of time that, you know, we're listening to them now 50 years later. And I'm extremely thankful for the music that they gave us because for people who love music and understand the weight that comes behind it, um, this is just some really good work. Yeah. um, I was thinking of like modern equivalents, like what, if you're a 20 something and you're into folk music, but you've just never listened to music from the seventies, like what's the modern equivalent. And I think that for me, you know, I see a Paul and Simon and Garfunkel kind of um, template in like the civil wars Mm. or uh, maybe a lesser known band that I love called Penny and Sparrow. Super good. Um, The, the Civil Wars is so interesting to me because um, it's like, it's kind of a similar setup. There's these two artists, uh, a guitarist and, and, a, and a vocalist, and they're singing harmonies together and it's gorgeous. Uh, but in the case of the Civil Wars, they never had a song that would ever approach the level of uh, success that Simon and Garfunkel had, and they only made one album together before they couldn't stand each other and they had to break up as a, as a, as a musical team. Mm-hmm. So, um, uh, yeah, so I, I'm thinking of those kind of influences uh, for me. You know, I know that a lot of people, I know that a lot of musicians cite Simon and Garfunkel as influences, but I was trying to say, who are, who are people who I think embody the sound uh, of Simon and Garfunkel. And those are the, the two that I, that I thought of off the top of my head. Yeah, I think those are two very good examples. Um, and, you know, I, um, when you think of people my age, and especially with this first episode, trying to get the ball rolling of like, hey, these are some artists you should listen to. I think it's really good to put a contemporary comparison of like, hey, here's where you can kind of hear them now. And if you like these groups, such as the civil wars, um, why don't you spend some time with Simon and Garfunkel? Because, uh, you know, that again, they are where the sound came from. So um, we are excited coming up. Uh, We are going to be having our two guests, Josh and Glenn joining us to discuss the magnum opus of this, of this group bridge over troubled water. We're going to be talking with them about what stood out to them and just, you know, the beauty that came from that piece of art that is, you know, ranked very highly uh, amongst the music critics of the world. So um, that's coming up. So stay with us and uh, we'll be back soon. y'all we are excited to have our two guests with us today two guys that are dear friends of both nate and i um and we're excited to catch both of josh and glenn in uh pretty uh exciting seasons of celebration our our friend joshua has recently gotten married which is awesome and uh, 
Our cool. dear friend Glenn uh, has recently adopted a second son, which is so cool. Very um, cool. So we are stoked to um, have two guys that we're friends with that are not only just high character guys, but uh, really love music and love talking about it. So we're excited to get this conversation going. Today we are zooming in specifically on um, that final album by this band, Bridge Over Troubled Water. And uh, really trying to just pick that one apart. Uh, an album that Rolling Stones ranked number 51 on their 500 greatest albums of all time. So dang near a top 50 album ever made, according to music critics, which is awesome. So um, Josh, I'd like to uh, start with you, if you don't mind. Sure. Um, I wanted you to come on the show, one, because uh, We've had so many good conversations about music. I really respect your opinion and your tastes. Oh. And um, wow. uh, I, you know, I wanted you to come on specifically because I think it would be cool. Not only you're a guy my age, so we're, you know, the younger end of the millennial generation. Yes. Um, and you have previous knowledge of this band. Like you actually like Simon and Garfunkel, which is cool. Um, because, you know, their music came out 50 years ago. So I guess yeah. like, my uh, my first question to you would just be like, in general, what led you to Simon and Garfunkel? Like, how did you, what was it about them that you, you know, like? What is it that got you started on this band that's, you know, decades b before we were born? Yeah, it's a, actually, uh, I remember it really specifically, funny enough, is when I went to, I went to college and, um, at Capital U, and right right down the road from there was uh, Bexley Public Library, and so I did a classic college maneuver where I would go every week to the library, uh, take out CDs, and then proceed to steal them and digitally burn them onto my computer. Nice. And so I would just I would just go and look for stuff all the time, and uh, I guess two things were going on that was going on. Another thing is I I just was picking up guitar around that same time as well. And being young in college, you know, you start, I was looking up like the, the classics, I guess, cause it's like, I, you know, my parents, big seventies folks that, you know, grew up on some of that, but it was um, more Johnny, Johnny D, Johnny Denver nice. specifically, With, you know, it was like a little more poppy, I guess, on the spectrum, not that Paul Simon isn't pop, but, uh, Definitely less like of the roots folk, more of the seventies folk, and less of the sixties. Even though this album came out in nineteen seventy, anyway, I um, was looking up the best songs of all time. There was like this thread online that said, like, if a person was deaf their whole life and they turned on, uh, they had to, they got their hearing back, and what song should they listen to? And the unanimous answer was the sound of silence, which not on this album. But I went and listened to it, and I was like, yeah, it's a pretty good song. I mean, it's not Viva La Vida by Coldplay, but it's pretty good. Just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> wow. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, that's what got into me, me into it. And, and really, folk guitar kind of thing was really what I was trying to play at, at the time when I was learning guitar. So that's what got me into it. Yeah, that's awesome. Because... Um... You're also a self-proclaimed uh, Sufjan Stevens fan. Huge Sufjan um, guy, I guess. Which yeah. he uh, he quotes Paul Simon to be a very large influence to him. So it's yeah, funny he 
you see that those two together. Yeah, he um, quotes, he, he references Paul Simon lyrics all the time in his lyrics. He has a song called All Delighted People, and it's literally, and people bowed and prayed is mm-hmm. like the main lyric. And um, yeah, Sufjan, I mean, huge influence in, back in like 2012, really, like just was listening to all of that. So, it, I mean, it's the same, the same thing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Comes from the, the same source for sure. Mm-hmm. From the same mother teat. Yeah. Yeah, I'd say so. That's a great way of putting it. You know, I never a thought of it that suckle, way. But. Suckle from the mother's teat of music. <laughs> a yeah. folk, a folk guitar music, yeah. And nice lyrics. The folk yeah. guitar, good lyrics, teat. Uh, Glenn, you being uh, the seasoned guest on our show. Well, the, thank uh, you. The oldest fella, a, a part of our group. Um, you, you were not old enough to listen to this music, you know, at, at least the majority of Simon and Garfunkel's catalog as it was coming out. Um, but you would have at least been much closer than the rest of us. So I, I'm curious as to um, the, the knowledge that you have in music, the knowledge that you have of Simon and Garfunkel. When you popped on this album a couple weeks ago for the first time in preparation for this show, uh, I don't know. What does the sounds of Bridge Over Troubled Water, where does that take you? Um, what does this music do for you? Well, my, my first thought is uh, Paul Simon, I was introduced to in high school because Paul Simon was part of the 80s. Mm. And it actually, it actually took me a while to connect. Oh, this is the same guy that my brothers used to listen to at home all the time mm. <laughs> in, in Garfunkel. So they, I, I'd heard Simon and Garfunkel in my home because my brothers were playing it all the time, but it, it hadn't been my music at that point. Yeah. So when I popped it in, I think my first thought at the end of the album was, uh, first, what a strange way to end an album with live, a live shot. I thought that was interesting. Yeah. Uh-huh. But more so the fact that it was such a journey uh, of styles, which you don't find as much in, in most music. The fact that you, you're not even sure, other than the voice being so distinctive, that you're listening to the same artist. Because the the styles and the instrumentation uh, has so much variety to it, mm. that that was what really stood out to me on the on the full listen. Just to sit down and listen to a whole album, something else we don't do as much of anymore. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, that's that's really good. Um, you know, Paul Simon and his diversity in his writing is uh, it really you know comes to a pinnacle on this on this album of just how. Um, different each song sounds but like you said there's that consistency in their lyrics or in their vocals there's that consistency in um, just the two of them as artists which you know it's so cool how those are able to blend um, as well as they do and Um, Cecilia specifically felt the most uh, uh, most of a teaser about what we'd get from Paul Simon in the 80s mm. for me anyway oh yeah that's a good point yeah, that's yeah. Re- yeah, that's really good. Paul Simon, um, you know, is so highly exalted with his um, just his ability as a as a songwriter that we obviously see with Simon and Garfunkel. But as you mentioned, like some of his best work was his solo stuff. Yeah. And um, you know, some music critics say if you take the Paul Simon catalog as a whole, you know, his best work was as a solo artist. But it is funny how, you know, um, he is, he's usually referenced as Simon and Garfunkel and right. not as Paul Simon, the songwriter. 
Uh, Tyler, is that album Graceland ranked, ranked higher? Because you said that Bridge Over Trouble Water is ranked 51 on Rolling Stones, greatest albums of all time. Is Graceland higher? I don't think it is. I don't think it's ranked higher. Um, yeah, I don't believe it is. It is not. But I, it, I, I know what you're saying because I, I've read that too. I think that there's a lot of music critics who love that album, Graceland in particular, and just think that it's uh, somewhat, yeah, like revolutionary. Um, wh- whereas I don't know that, um, I mean, there were some breakthrough things that we could go to track by track on, on Bridge Over Troubled Water. Um, literally, uh, the Boxer was the first song ever recorded on a 16-track recorder. Mm-hmm. Um, previous to that, it was four-track or eight-track recorder, and so the the the, the pr- production company had to buy one of these newfangled giant sixteen-track recorders because they had so much going on in that song. But um, but I don't think that there was as much breakthrough musically or sonically in Bridge Over Troubled Water, even though I I personally think it's the it's the better album. I just think that Paul Simon's Graceland was just so different um and kind of exploratory um but yeah yeah they have rolling stones has graceland ranked at 71 okay so 20 slots lower but still top 100 which you know is so impressive for Mm -hmm. one individual um yeah i like what you just brought up there nate with just the creativity that comes from this from this album um glenn kind of shared uh his thoughts on you know what stood out the most to him um, about this album, um, as I was doing research, I was seeing um, that uh, from an interview, Paul Simon was saying that this was the first album that they used the studio as an instrument, right? As a as a contributing factor. So, like right. as you're mentioning there, they're buying new equipment that you know has never been used before, right? They are um, the non instrument. Uh, such as like their hands and just like things that they found in the studio, which I just thought was so fascinating. And it only um, further attributes their creativity when it comes to how they wrote, which I just think is so cool. Uh, yeah. The, uh, I'm, I'm looking up something. Uh, yeah. They, they literally re- recalled, uh, they went all throughout the country um, to record this album. Um, they uh, were meeting in church cathedrals. They were meeting in, in these different places. And so, yeah, definitely they, they viewed the suit studio and the acoustics they could get from their environment as an instrument in this album. The opening kind of drum clap thing to Cecilia that um, kind of starts the song, that was recorded uh, in like a, I don't know if it was drug addled, but it was like a 3 a.m. drum circle that they were doing with their friends in the in the house the little blue house that the song the beatles song little blue house was writing about so that was a a popular place for for artists to record and so they were literally and i I think this is back to that uh roy halley the producer who was we would we were talking about uh previous to to glenn and uh josh coming on that that he was kind of like the third person in simon and garfunkel and um basically they took this 60 second loop that they had recorded in the middle of a four-hour drum circle they gave it to roy halley and they said we we want this to be the beginning of the song and so he figured out 
how to create a loop. Like, and, and this isn't like he had pro tools and he just like copied and pasted some stuff. It was like, he had to analog tape the tape yeah. in a loop and, and put the play, the tape recorder far enough apart from one another that that would catch it and would play it again. Uh, and so the, the ingenuity that they played um, and, and really that, um, that clap thing, I, I honestly don't always feel like it adds a lot to that song, but the fact that they were willing to go to such great lengths to include it um, is, is I think part of the reason that the album succeeds so much is that like they just do things um, they're willing to incorporate really bizarre, you know, and strange and, and time consuming processes to make sure that it gets the sound that they want it to get. And while you're surrounded by people saying you want to do what? Yeah. <laughs> what, yeah. Like, you want to make what noise? <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. That's, that's yeah. Because I mean, their sound, um, their sound is different. It's unique. They're, they're creative. And, you know, Paul pulls from so many different sources in terms of genres and styles of music. Um, what was something, Josh, that, you know, you first couple spins of this record, what's something that stood out to you? Something that, you know, um, you liked and really popped off as you were listening to this album? Sure. Um, well, you know, just a couple more listens. I mean, it, it like thematically, it's really interesting. It's totally a breakup album, but like 100%. with of them, you know what I'm saying? It's not mm-hmm. like so that's that's like pretty interesting. And then I was looking into like how they were where they were, you know, and Art was like going to do his acting thing. And mm-hmm. and I mean, that that was kind of that's pretty relatable. Another thing, though, is just like the boxer is such a stellar song, man. Like, yeah. I think that's probably my favorite Simon and Garfunkel. I think, uh, like, you know, I mean, Bridge Over Turtle Water is classic. Sound of Silence, classic. Cecilia. Um, Cecilia also, Cecilia has, like, the, it's, like, the most, like, earwormy song. I can't, if, if I hear that song once, it's stuck in my head forever. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, just, like, the cool things. And it's interesting that, you know, talking about how much they use the studio. Um, because... I think it's, you know, I mean, that precedent was probably set a couple of years earlier by like the Beatles with Sgt. Peppers and, um, you know, this idea of going all out and being like, you know what, I don't care if we can play these songs live at all. I want to make something that sounds mm. totally wild. Yeah. But with that being said, I think this album, you know, if they would have stayed a band, I, th- I mean, they, I think they, they've reunion, they've played shows since, but like all these songs are doable. Like even I think in 1970s standards, you know, if you had enough people on stage. So even using the studio, like to make some pretty big things to go beyond the the New York City, Greenwich, like folk sound. Um, it was like still like a little bit, a little bit restrained. Does that make sense? It's like not too much. You know, it's not like the end of like a day in the life where there's just like total breakdown of reality you know so yeah that's what stood out to me i guess yeah it's the the complexity is obviously there and present um i think that just kind of speaks to paul simon's you know ability as a composer to i'm going to take all of these weird tiny moving parts right and um funneling them into a way that like seemingly has a nice bow on them at the end which is just cool Mm -hmm. Um, 
I like that you uh, referenced the uh, personal struggle that the two of them were having at the time. I think that's something that um, obviously influenced this album specifically. Uh, Josh plugged uh, while he was talking how uh, Art Garfunkel was down in Mexico, you know, pursuing an acting career, shooting a movie, um, Catch-22. Um, and this is in the midst of trying to record this album that again ranks so highly so like a lot of this work fell on paul simon's shoulders um and there are a couple tracks on the album that uh garfunkel's not even featured he had he didn't even touch them which is so fascinating to me that um which i guess it's just you know a foreshadowing their eventual demise but they 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 spent so much time apart during the creation of this album um and you hear that in the lyrics you hear that in the some of the musicality of the different songs, right? Um, yeah, I was thinking that uh, it, it's it's a question of whether, did Art know this is a breakup album <laughs> when it's being written, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. But you get to something like uh, The Only Boy in New York and Mexico's directly referenced. Like this is, mm-hmm. this is pretty much telling you, hey bro, you, you left me hanging here, kind of a feel. Well, um, yeah, their mm-hmm. first band that they were together in was called Tom and Jerry. And Art, right. his name was Tom in that and and simon went as jerry and so the opening line of that plane that song is tom um get right to your plane on time i know your part will go fine yeah so i i love that song uh glenn i think it's probably my favorite song on the album i know it's kind of like a b cut um compared to some of the the huge songs like bridge over troubled water and cecilia and the boxer uh but it's so tender i don't know there's something about it of like yeah, it's a total breakup song of of a of a guy who is I, I've been watching interviews of Paul Simon on on TV shows. Uh and this was later in life when he's, you know, uh maybe in his sixties. Uh and he said, Art Garfunkel is the person I've known longest in my whole life. Um and so I mean at the time that probably wasn't the case, but um these two are yin and yang. I mean, like they've orbited each other, they created five studio albums together. Uh, this album is gorgeous from start to finish. It becomes the best-selling album, not only in 1970, but also in 71 and 72. So it's right. the <laughs> album for the next three years. And I, you know, there's just so many beautiful, uh, yeah, just fun songs. Um, it feels like almost like Paul Simon was like, I'm going to do one song in every genre, like every song is an homage to something, you know, the keep the customer satisfied. I mm. love this song. It's a blues riff underneath all the other stuff and the, and the horns and everything. It's just a blues riff. Um, and also I think the song's about running moonshine, which makes me love it. Um, <laughs> and then uh, the boxer is, is a country song. And then there's that Congo part that sounds like horse clopping. Yeah, you know, and yeah. he brings in Frank Carter Jr., who's a country legend, to play guitar uh, with him on that tune. And so it's like, but the boxer, we don't think of it as a country song, but that's because Paul Simon's a genius. Like, and so he kind of nods his head to country, but then he writes this song that that's more than country. It transcends, you know. Uh, my, I think my very favorite moment on the album is when the bass harp comes in on the boxer. 
um i had to look up what the heck that instrument was i was like what is this like low rumbly dirty accordion sound and yeah. i had to look it up and it's like oh it's a bass harp i didn't even know that was a thing uh so like, there's just so many fun moments like that throughout the album that i just yeah i think the same thing with uh so long frank lloyd Wright. oh yeah this oh, little yeah. there's this little wink to kind of classic clubby jazz yeah, almost like a South American classical guitar, you know, like, but uh, yeah, you know what, Glenn, that's so good, because I looked up the chords to some of these songs, because Tyler and I were like, oh, we should play songs on this podcast. And we're like, oh, we can't afford it. And I was like, oh, maybe I could play some of the songs on like my guitar. And so I looked up the chords to So Long Frank Floyd Wright, and it's like this absolutely mess of jazz chords maybe jazz right can do it um but oh, it's no. just like there's all there's like 50 different chords in that one song it's like amazing yeah i was i was trying to i was just kind of playing trying as i was listening just trying to play along i was like what the heck you in it like there's no <laughs> there you it seems like there's no rhyme or reason but it is it clearly clearly is well and i don't know maybe you guys do if there's any kind of classical training with him but even tyler as you were speaking earlier um, I was my undergrads in music and music theory, and he writes like a composer, not like a songwriter a lot of the time. Right. A hundred percent. Yeah. He, he, if he's not classically trained, he is obviously very classically influenced mm. by mm -hmm. classical music. Um, and, and that that's all throughout his work. Yeah. He referenced, um, in an interview, um, when they were talking about just how the song, the, the song Bridge Over Troubled Water came to be, um, and he was just talking about the different influences that came into it. And he goes, well, this part was actually um, a chorale written by Bach, and, but I could only play this far, and I got stuck. Um, but then I listened to this gospel song, and they have this great little riff in the chorus that I said, that's it. So I added that to the end of the, of the Bach chorale. And then there's like this, you know, this vocal harmony where I wanted to go like this. And I'm like, what in the world? You're just blending so many different genres together that has given us this great track. But it's so funny how he was able to weave those together. Mm -hmm. And with that track, what an all time bro move of letting art sing it. You yes. know, and like, uh, I mean, I think it would, I think he did it because, well, I don't think he's a mean guy, but like, I, I mean, it, art, art was, I mean, he sings great on it. It's amazing. Yeah. But like, you know, maybe, like, maybe that's one of the most known Simon and Garfunkel songs ever. Yeah. And it's mm -hmm. art. Possibly one of the most well-known songs. Oh yeah. <laughs> Pop yeah. music songs yeah. ever. No doubt. And it, like, that would be a, that'd be an interesting thing I think to, to write. And I mean, he wrote, Paul wrote, like we kind of said so much, so much of it. So to give any of that up, it's pretty, pretty cool yeah i agree uh, well and the 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 reason that he i think that it's uh the the song that it is because he gave it to art garfunkel because um they when i did some research behind the scenes about the song the it was just a two verse song just like a he just thought it was like a two verse little gospel song you know but art wanted to launch he wanted after that second chorus to really launch it into the stratosphere and kind of feature, because he's singing such a beautiful falsetto in those first two vo verses, but he wants to launch and kind of just really sing out. Uh, and so Paul Simon writes that third verse, which I think is the most beautiful verse, the sail on silver girl. Um, 
which is not a reference to to heroin, which people thought, but to his uh, wife at the time turning uh, her hair turning gray at age thirty. Um, but I, I think it's that that verse and that change and that launch that that really elevates the song. And of course, the beautiful strings that are coming in and just like this whole. So I don't think the song would have been. It would have still been a beautiful song, but if it would only been a two-verse gospel song, I think it would have been like maybe the third best song on the album, you know, maybe behind the boxer and Cecilia or something like that. But as it was, it became the name of the album. It became the first track. It became the first single. It was like everything was about this song, and for good reason. It's just such a gorgeous song. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about. Um, I know a couple of you guys have already plugged all of your favorites on the album um mine i would have to say uh i do really love cecilia and i think when it comes to like the quote-unquote bangers of simon and garfunkel that's going to be my favorite uh that that is a song of actually about banging it is it is uh (laughs) but uh i will have to say my favorite song on the album is um baby driver uh because that song again it's maybe not you know it's obviously not as well known as some of those other songs we've been referencing uh but i just i love it so much because it's such a fast-paced edgy um the closest thing we're going to get to a rock song from uh simon and garfunkel where like is usually where my music uh tastes lie and so just the edginess of the guitar of the guitar and in the chorus um and, you know, the lyrics talking about a uh, a boy who's seemingly, like, always on the run, hard to pin down. Um, and, you know, as a, as a guy personally who has myself, who has always, you know, struggled with commitment, this song is like a, a song that is upbeat, it's fun, um, and I really like it musically, and it speaks to a much deeper underlying uh, theme that really speaks to me. Um, I just think it's a great track and I get really stoked every time it <laughs> comes on when I'm listening to the album in order. This is certainly not a favorite uh, because there's just too many good ones. Uh, yeah. But the El Condor Pasa is such a weird song. Um, and it's because it's, uh, it's a song that Paul Simon just hears. He's performing in France. The band that goes before him is a, is a, are they Peruvian? I can't remember. Peruvian. Where yeah, yeah Peruvian. a band yeah. called Los Incas. And they're playing this tune. And Paul's like, and this is another, this is a, a great example of their like willingness to like try new things. Paul's like, I want to write a song and just sing it over top of that. But instead of recording their own studio version of that song, they just approached the Los Incas and said, can we just, you guys already recorded this. Can we just use your song and so that's what they did so like the, so the song is performed by this by this uh band the south american band uh and he just sings over top of it the other interesting thing behind that is um so the los incas when, when paul simon was doing copyright stuff with them ahead of time paul simon said is this a song that you guys wrote or is this a traditional andean music uh, and they said it's just a traditional music uh so there's no like copyright issues and so he's like oh great uh, and so he was very generous with them and, and they actually went on tour with them and all this whole stuff. Well, then we they found out later that it was not just a traditional song. This song was composed by a, a South American artist um, and his son, when they when he heard the song and there was no 
uh, acknowledgement of his dad's writing this song, his dad had already passed away. He took Paul Simon to court for copyright infringement. And, and his son said, it was the nicest, um, most boring court case in the world because Paul Simon was of course wanting to give credit to where credit was due. He just had wrong information and everybody in the courtroom knew what had happened. It was like, it wasn't Paul Simon's fault. They, the, the son wasn't even mad at Los Incas. He's like, they didn't know that my dad wrote this, they gave him the wrong information. Uh, and so he said that even the guy who got ripped off by Paul Simon was like, he was so gracious. He was so humble. He took time to talk with me and like, you know, all this stuff. And so even, even stuff like that, which seems like in my, and for me, it was the least strong musically on the album. It still has so much cool story behind it, you know? My uh, my closing question for each of us that we can that we can answer and dig into is it really gets to the heart of this project. Um, we've been spending the last couple of weeks with Simon and Garfunkel, and so I would love um, uh, to see to hear from you on why should the youngsters of the world, kids my age and below, why should they spend time with this artist? What is it about Simon and Garfunkel that y'all think? Um, kids should be like why is it worth our time kids should be listening to this band uh, I guess the first thoughts for me are some of the things we've already mentioned the fact that there's just so much experimentation in one album and mm -hmm. so many different instruments that you're going to hear uh, but for me the love of uh, Simon and Garfunkel goes back to their lyrics I just, I just think the lyrics are stellar and anyone who appreciates uh, the, that part of songwriting should be exploring this. So if you're a fan of songs today that are well-crafted lyrically, then you need to dive into some of this. Yeah, that's good. I was just gonna say, you know, I think there's a lot to learn from everything Paul Simon has ever done. And with this one, I mean, it's like, how do you, learning how to make a pop song, but not sell out to, um, I, I don't know, you keep the subject matter still powerful. and and. I almost said right there, you know, like pop songs don't really have that. It, pop songs do have that. There are some songs that like are, you know, talking about more, I don't know, that, that aren't just surface deep. Yeah. Um, but I mean, Paul Simon uh, is talking about real things a lot of the time and uh, uh, was just kind of, kind of, I don't know, doing what, doing what he wanted to do. And, and uh, you know, if you want to learn and like the guitar parts, the the lyrical, the singing, all that, the harmonies, like another huge part of Simon Garfunkel, mm -hmm. you got to listen to it. You got to listen to it. Yeah, that's really good. It's really good. NATO. I think um, all of us love it when a song just instantly grabs us. Like I found a song this last week that was new to me, Icelandic pop song super weird and i just loved it immediately and it, mm -hmm. i like i just was just grabbed me but um and there's probably actually a couple songs on this album that do that um but what i love to do with with albums is i like to listen when i'm really trying to understand an artist i like to listen to the album five times is just to get to know them and then like 10 times to really get into it you know and um when you listen to an album front to finish, even if there are those songs that one or two that might grab you right away, a deeper listening normally like 
normally you just don't love it more at the end of a deep listen. You you maybe walk away with like, oh, there's a couple songs and and whatever. But man, this is one of those albums that like I've probably listened to it now 20 times in the last several weeks. And I love it more every time I listen to it. It's just like because of all the reasons we said, because every song is layered with more and more complexity and interest and and yeah, and like to, to Josh and, and Josh's point, Josh and Josh, Josh and Glenn, <laughs> um, to that they're at the heart of each song are lyrics that are intimate and real, you know, like I feel like I am in Paul Simon's head in the the fall of 1969 when he's writing this album yeah um and and there's something about that that's kind of like pretty pretty magical um so for me i don't i don't know that i have a a a whole lot of albums that i can say you're gonna love it more on your 20th listen than on your first listen but this is definitely one of them yeah that's good we haven't mentioned this yet but what about the cover art (laughs) (laughs) which is completely telling you before you put on the first song Oh, this is totally a breakup album. <laughs> just uh, Paul, just Art Funkel's, Art Garfunkel's eyes and right. Poopy Jufro is all you I'm can see. Paul, Paul all smiling and happy and Art, you have no idea how pissed he is. No idea. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, uh, um, I heard Dwayne Wade say one time about LeBron James um, that you know, LeBron gets all the accolades and rightfully so, you know, he gets all the accolades, he gets all the praise, yada, yada, yada. But the one thing that he will never have over Dwayne Wade is um, a good hairline as, as LeBron's is just continually receding. And uh, so what I've been thinking about, you know, I, you know, I always go into the real in-depth details of, of music is that though Paul Simon was so good with a guitar and so good as a musician and a composer. Um, the one thing that he could never master uh, was his bangs. And uh, if you look at any picture of him at any time, um, his hair was not good. No. <laughs> so uh, I feel like at least in that regard, and, and really only that regard, I do have a little leg up on, on Paul Simon, which feels good. It feels nice. I think I would say, and, and what we'll close with today is, um, if there's anything that the younger generation can take from Paul Simon uh, and Simon and Garfunkel, again, I, we keep referencing Paul Simon. Um, Art Garfunkel is obviously so important to this group. Um, but the one thing that I would say about them is, um, yes, their music is so good. It's complex. It's beautiful. The lyrics are detailed and well-written. If you consider yourself a fan of the art of music and you take that seriously, um, these two guys have influenced so many modern artists that um, you're doing yourself a disservice by not getting into their music and at least hearing where the source came from. Um, That was, you know, that was the real inspiration behind um, my own conviction of just like, man, I keep seeing this group popping up everywhere it's a shame that I only know Mrs. Robinson, right? And so I uh, would encourage um, anyone who is unfamiliar with this group, as I did myself, that they're worth the listen simply because of what they have meant to the world of music over the last 50 years. And with that, we'll wrap up our first episode here. 
Glenn, Josh, I just want to thank you two so much for agreeing to come on the show. You know, I always look forward and cherish any time that I get to spend with you guys. So um, thank you again for agreeing to come on. It means the world to me. Nate, as always, you're my boy, and you and I will be getting together in two weeks right back here as we will be having a new episode discussing a new artist uh, with some new friends as we really get to dive into those key playmakers within this genre of folk rock. So we encourage you to drop by and tune in next time, because at least for this summer, the forecast is always a high of 70.